Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This is exciting for me. I have the whole band toed the wet sprocket here. Todd Nichols, Dean Dinning, Glenn Phillips. And uh, I have known these guys for 30 years, I realize. And uh, we all were like kids when we met. Glenn, you were like prepubescent, basically. (laughs) Still is. And um, I asked Glenn to do this because I guess it's your 30th anniversary as recording artist, which means, you know, it's it's our 30th anniversary too. I was thinking about this um, when I saw you guys play here in New York, I guess a year ago or a year and a half ago. As soon as we all are in a room together, it's like time has just disappeared. Um, and I was thinking about why and, and I get wistful about how both how like sure of ourselves we all were and how little we actually knew. Um, when you think about it compared to now, but we also understood certain essential things. So how does that time when you were had just recorded Bread and Circus, you had um, recorded Pale, but it wasn't out yet at all in any way, not even on cassettes for your friends. How does that time sit for you guys? Because I imagine it was the, like, the very last moment where it was just you guys and, and your dream. When, like when you think back to those days, how does it, how does it land for you? It's hard to remember, honestly. I mean, it's so long ago, and in some ways we're so unformed. And I think generally there was a lot of, uh, you know, how can I say, happy bafflement. Like, we didn't expect, you know, we made these records kind of assuming we were going to break up at the end of that summer. Um, And I was going to go to San Francisco. We were going to go to different schools. Like, we were just going to have these couple records and, you know, play them for our kids someday. And then the next thing we knew, um, we were talking to record companies and getting signed and getting wined and dined and all of that. So it was a really weird experience. Like it was a dream, but I think for us, there's a, like most bands have that as a dream that they are actively working towards and expecting and hoping to achieve. And we had it as this, like, we'd already given, like, it wasn't going to happen to us. And then all of a sudden it did. And so I think we were, it was a little confusing. But Todd, I mean, you were, <laughs> did you feel the same? You were, you I guys are, cu- right, that's what I want to know. Ta- mm. They were going to college and I was just, I was cutting college to, you know, write songs and figure out where we were going to play, where, you know, the next gig would be for us. And uh, I think I, I always had more optimism about us being successful how mm-hmm. I kind of thought that the, I kind of felt that the band would be successful too because I always felt I was the kind of the last person in and I always felt like if I were not in the band that I would be a fan of of this music because I just I liked everything about it it was right up my alley it had the acoustic guitars you know it had the harmonies it was everything that I liked and and the great songs so it was kind of like it seemed like it seemed like it could be a possibility. It was worth going for, but I mean, I had a plan B and stayed in school right up until the moment we signed our record deal. So, how old were the two of you, Todd and Dean, when you made when you first came together as a band? Well, we're the same age. Uh, I don't know. We were probably seventeen. Yeah, seventeen. And so, how old were you then? Uh, was, Three years younger, right? Yeah, it was fourteen when you and I started writing songs. Yeah, and, and then we went through a few like really early you know, early versions and lineups and then kind of got it together as Toad. Mm-hmm. And you made, you made Bread and Circus, you were still, a, you were senior in high school, Glenn? Probably, I didn't do the same, I, I got out uh, uh, early, but I was probably 16. When you recorded that. Yeah, 16 When you recorded that record. And t- Todd, when you were writing those songs, were you, because the the two of you started writing, it was the two of you writing together. Were you writing in the same room then, or were you doing the thing where you would write some Even riffs and then, then show them to Glenn? You no, know, I had a little four track cassette, and uh, Glenn wrote the is a lyric guy, and uh, I would show him some chords and stuff, and say, just write some lyrics really quick so we can record this. And uh, yeah. And then you would go off, Glenn, and write the lyrics? Yeah, unless we were trying to record really quick. I mean, there's, you know, the story is like, you know, Walk on the Ocean is one of those ones where it was like, we're cutting a demo, and it's like, instead of waiting another day for me to write something good, it's just like, I said, write some down. lyrics just really quickly. And he seriously wrote those right in front of me in seven minutes, I think. 
Really? So yeah, Walk on the Ocean. I kept wanting a second draft. <laughs> I mean, that that lyric is one of the best lyrics you ever wrote, actually. Well, it it does that incredible thing. Apparently, has, when I get out of my own way, well, that's, it's, well, that's it's what I wanted to talk about. I want you guys to play "Walk on the Ocean" a little while, but the, and and that's part of why I asked you all to be here because I it it always drives me crazy. You know, my history with the band, which you guys know and people don't necessarily know. Um, Glenn, you and I podcasted, but our conversation went off in a very different directions. Um, is I was a young talent scout for a record company and. I was one of the first people to hear the band and I immediately sort of understood how great you were and I started proselytizing about the band right from that moment on and stayed completely connected with all of you and particularly, you know, Glenn, you and I have spent a lot of time together. Um, never Seen not all been, your apartments. Yes, you've stayed on the couch <laughs> of every one of my apartments I've ever had. Um, that's for sure. Uh, but it drives me a little crazy that people don't understand. Uh, you know, you guys are popular. You tour. You still sell out these places that you play. You're playing in, in New York tonight. But uh, for me, um, I think people don't understand. You know, you know, it's it's easy for people to write off the the idea of bands from the time period that you guys were making this music. And I think it's a travesty because I think you're one of the best bands, uh, best songwriters of the time. And um, uh, but when I hear Glenn, you say I'd written this down to ask. When you say to me it was sort of a, a lark, like I thought I was going to go on, and then these two guys are both like, "Well, not us." And I, I think that that might be to, a lot of the band dynamic right there. <laughs> well, I, I think my connection to you guys lets me have some insight into the fact that, like, it, it seems you always had this ambivalence about the commercial part of this, whereas the the two of you did not, and. Can you talk a little bit about what what you'd hoped for out of it, really? I just, I liked making art. I mean, when we started, I was in theater and was going to be a theater major. Uh, I mean, I think I told you about my experience with my drama teacher who, had, you know, was a teacher because he didn't want to have to sell himself. And I, at 16, like, felt like that rang true for me like I didn't think I would be able and and there's some truth in it like actually the exposure of being in a band has been really hard psychologically for me uh, I mean and so I felt like I was too thin-skinned to be in that or sensitive to uh, have that kind of exposure and so I decided early on I was going to be a teacher and um, so being in the band, making art, creating things, I, I love. Uh, but that ambition, that need to be on top, I just didn't have. And so, or to be seen in that way or to compete in that way, I didn't want to have to do that. And so uh, for me, it, you know, we found ourselves in that world and, you know, didn't say no, obviously, but... I, I, this, is that kind yeah, of what, what you were asking? What were your ambitions, really, for the I same? remember ever since I was, like, 10, watching the monkeys on TV, I knew that, you know, this would be a pretty cool job. <laughs> Apart from living with uh, the band in a little place. Yeah, right. <laughs> Apart from, like, being in vans yeah. all the time. But, you mean, you wanted to play music for your life and be on stage, Todd. You felt that would work. I thought it was, you know, something I could do. But you have a great voice. Why didn't you want to be a lead singer? originally like what was it about the collaboration that you were i don't into? really have much to say you know lyrically like, you mean. yeah lyrically and uh you know that's why uh it worked out well with uh co-writing with glenn i can't shut up right <laughs> yes so that you're saying that you didn't feel like you had much to say lyrically yeah and also you know i didn't want to put myself out there as much kind of like what glenn was talking about so bit. this was a way you could do that, yeah, and be sort of in a in the spotlight, but also have somebody else be out front. Yeah, that's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, I, I never know. felt like the front man, you know. So, and but what about then the songs that you sing? Do you like when you sing crazy lot? You know, do you like? Well, when I would write the songs, I would just come along a melody, and so Glenn just kind of forced me to sing a couple of these songs, you know, over the years on on each record or song here or there it's not it's not something i really enjoyed but it's fun now looking back on it as something i did 
Yeah, I always say to him, "Crazy Life's one of my favorite Toad songs." Yeah, I love that song. Uh, it's just an amazing song, and I love that he wrote those fucked up lyrics to that. I was song. we were shocked. I'm so like, great. what are we gonna do with this? And a lot of people don't realize that it's Todd singing. If they don't know ahead of time, they'll just it's sort it's sort of seamless with the rest of the material. Um, most a lot of people are surprised when they come to the show, and then they have to sort of turn to their left to see Todd <laughs> sing that song. It's mm-hmm. like. What? Yeah, well, we, we kind of learn to sing around each other, so I think there's a similarity in inflection. And there's what's the song you sing on the first or second record? Nothing is alone. I right. think about. Yeah, I think about. Yeah, I think about. I will say I didn't know that it wasn't Glenn singing. I think about until much later. They used years to be, later. Their voices were much more similar back in the early days. Yeah, Glenn um, used to have a husky voice. It sounds totally different than his voice, and it does now. sound closer to yours. Yeah. On those early records. And what were your ambitions, Dean, at the beginning? Well, you know, my family's been in the music business since the 1940s. In what way? You know, my my dad's three sisters were a a close harmony trio called the Dinning Sisters. They were contemporaries of the Andrews Sisters. My dad took them to Chicago when they were teenagers, uh, got them signed to NBC. They performed live on the radio on a show called The National Bar and Dance and performed with Bing Crosby and made records and did the whole thing. And so that was it had already it was already in the blood of my family. There were many people that had done it. Um, my uncle Mark Dinning had a number one song with Teen Angel in 1960. Um, my aunt Dolores was on the Hee Haw television show as a backup singer That's for amazing. the entire run of it. So <laughs> I would go to my aunt and uncle's house and there were like gold records on the wall. And I'd be like, not only do I want that record, I want this house. Right. You wanted the whole thing. I wanted the whole thing. And you were, and and you said that when you heard their songs, the beginnings of their oh, songs. Oh yeah, I came in originally. They had, I don't know, yeah, how the they band had, come they together? had done some demos that had a bunch of keyboard parts on it, and everybody knew that I played piano because I had done this masochism tango thing, this Tom <laughs> Lehrer oh, yeah. song. And you were and, all in the same high school. Yeah, so mm-hmm. they knew that I was competent on keys, and and uh, so I came in to essentially recreate the keyboard parts that were on the demos live, and then I just stayed. Right, and, and then Glenn was playing I was bass, playing bass, bass at the time. yeah. yeah. I was a terrible bass player. Dean could actually stay in. As opposed to your monstrous guitar. As opposed to the monstrous guitar work. I was pretty bad at all of it. We all were bad. No, that's not true. You, you guys were great musicians from the no. beginning, I think. I, was, I think Dean... I mean, I remember the first Dean time might have been. seeing you guys. Dean was, and Dean really was a very good musician. Sometimes, so you know, one of the, it's one of those things where you're a product of your limitations. You know, I think that... Uh, the not not being able to shred really was mm-hmm. beneficial for us because it put the emphasis on the songs and you know there's a certain simplicity about toad songs that yeah and you know people can learn guitar by playing these mm-hmm. songs just like i learned guitar by playing eagle songs yeah like right. todd's todd's parts were always about air and tone and like letting notes linger and how you know it's like always about that and i just got good at sitting back and rhythm guitar and got you know it's like we we developed well you did develop your own around each other yeah i don't think we developed it until maybe the coil record or even the last record we did in 2012 we were just kind of uh you know just doing our own thing faking it i think we got a lot better as we after we broke up yeah well the i mean i do think that the last record is an i mean you know i i'm a full-on like fanatic for the last record I could sing you all the songs um but I do think that you found this I would say as a listener I think you found the sound early on um well and coming back to it we actually got to ask what the sound was which was something we never asked I mean it's weird I think of like a band like the Pixies like yes where I feel like the Pixies when they started they were just counting it's like no one's going well it's three bars of six eight plus right. a bar of seven like it's i think frank black was just like i wrote this and then they'd all kind of bang through it and make it work and then you could tell when it started getting to like tromplemond like the bossa nova the last albums they'd all learned a lot about music and there was this difference in I mean, there was this sophistication to all their playing. They understood what they were doing, and it, it changed the sound in a, in a way that, you know, and I, I, I don't is know. Ba- I feel is like that better, though? I mean, to me, Surfer Rose, I saw the one Surfer Rose is perfect. And I saw Bone Machine. I mean, they came out and played Bone Machine, and I'd never seen anything like that in my life. I barely understood it, actually. I was yeah. standing with the guy who signed them. Pete and I Lubin. don't know if they did. Right. You mean it was just, they just um, a form of primitive art, in a way. Yeah. Youthful exuberance and... Uh, 
just not caring what you're doing. You know? mm-hmm. And we weren't that interesting, but <laughs> I would say that there's there's a difference in like that as as we got along, we did what we were capable of and what we could make work. And then at some point, almost reverse engineered it after we'd actually learned to play a little. But don't you think you were taking it because what, taking uh, the doing of it pretty seriously back then in terms of trying your very, very, very best? I What I remember, yeah. and even when I go back and listen to those records, is like, those words are really carefully written. The melodies and the harmonies are very clearly thought out. And it does seem like it was the work of people trying to take this super seriously is that not what you felt Todd you know I think the music was serious uh, I think we uh, had a good sense of humor though it wasn't all seriousness well yeah their songs are there's some funny song I mean Corporal Brown's funny <laughs> yeah we had a few fun songs but we were also always trying to reduce like our songs were short I remember always cutting out like any extra repetition anything that felt like fat like we were always trying to get to the core of like say what needs to be said say it as succinctly as possible and as well as possible musically and lyrically how did you uh get bread and circus recorded because you were all still like 21 and glenn you were 17 we had a friend who became uh, one of our managers his name was brad knack and he saw us perform live at a club and uh, asked us to back him up in the studio. He was a songwriter. He had a, a publishing deal with Warner Chapel, and um, he um, he had a uh, he knew had a friend who had a recording studio, and asked us to back him up on two of his songs and to as payment we could record two of our songs. So we recorded the first two songs um, for Bread and Circus, and it was a what was it? Was it fifteen dollars an hour? But we, uh, we, we would go to this house in Thousand Oaks and set up live in, in various rooms and, and throw it down onto 2-inch 16 track. Um, no automation in the, on the board or anything. We were all, all hands on deck. You to know, mix. When, when yeah, we were doing the mixes. Too. But, um, you know, we just kind of couldn't believe how good it sounded. It was the first time we'd heard ourselves really well recorded. Now, some of the things had been demoed. Todd got an eight-track uh, Fostex machine very early on. And my parents were, uh, were older. They were going away a lot in the, during that time. So our house would become a recording studio whenever they would leave for two or three weeks. And we, we did all these incredible demos of Way Away and Pale Blue and, and you know, everything else. So we were... Things were really solidified by the time we got in there, and we really just threw it down live. Mm-hmm. We heard these first two songs back, and we're like, you know, eight more, and we've got ourselves a cassette that we can sell because most of our friends couldn't get in to see us live. They were they were the same age we were, and we weren't old enough to get into the clubs either. Right. I mean, you guys weren't even twenty one yet. No, no, not even. Mm-mm. So you know, we just we did the other eight songs, and and um, cost six hundred. It cost six hundred and fifty dollars total. And did you even Glenn know that it was good? Like when it was done. Like, were you surprised that your voice sounded that good and that the whole thing felt like a real album? We were happy with it. I mean, and and even the voice sounded good. Like, we cut live lead vocals. There's no, we didn't overdub the lead vocals and get them right, which is why, like, one little girl, it's like, one little bye. <laughs> like, there's biffed words. and We didn't even know you could overdub. Sour notes. Or you could no. cut tape. No, no, no. That really? was, we did that a couple of many overdubs, I thought. Yeah, we did a couple of overdubs. <laughs> I'm exaggerating a but little bit. But the first two records were mean. basically <laughs> cut live. Right. I mean, you know, we just went in and played them. So I saw you play for the first time right after Bread and Circus had people started getting bread and circus you came to la i happened to be out there and you guys played a, a gig there and then i drove to santa barbara soon thereafter for that night that we all met in that restaurant um and the first song i saw you perform was way away which is also the song that opens that album would you guys play it yeah, in case sure. people don't know it <clears throat> By posing sympathy with their whitewashed eyes Ladies feigning their morning cries And the men shaking hands
Awesome. I mean, you guys haven't played that song together in a while, and you just crush it. ZipRecruiter. Let's just talk about ZipRecruiter for a second. I, I can say this to you. Uh, it is hard to hire the right person for the job. I just know when I'm trying to fill crew positions, when I'm trying to fill positions in the writer's room. We started today, the writer's room for season five of Billions, and... I'm so happy with the room we put together, but it was really difficult. Look, if you're going through just like random applications for jobs, uh, there are just too many applicants. It's hard to find qualified candidates. Really difficult. But ZipRecruiter, ZipRecruiter.com slash moment is uh, a hugely effective way to sort of cut through all of that. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As the applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and immediately spotlights the top candidates. So if there is a great match, when there is, you don't miss it. Look, ZipRecruiter is so effective. Four to five employees who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash moment. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash M-O-M-E-N-T. ZipRecruiter.com slash moment. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Uh, so great. And I'm just brought back to this thing that, that, that happened to you when you came to L.A., played those, that gig or a couple gigs, um, and suddenly the entire record business, I guess you'd recorded Pale around that time also, right? You recorded the two things. Yeah, we were just finishing Pale. Right. And I remember hearing Come Back Down off Pale um, and knowing, okay, these guys are, they're going to write hit songs and this is all going to work. But what did it feel like? Todd, why don't you go first? Like, what did it feel like when you play those gigs in LA, you go back to Santa Barbara and suddenly every single record company except the one that I worked for <laughs> wanted. That's right, that's right. right, that's what happened. The reason I got to be friends with you guys was because Electric very passed. quickly you chose me and then I went to elect my bosses and they were like, we're not gonna sign this band. Oh, and then man. I could advise you on what to, like then we started talking and I would we talk to your manager, <laughs> try to help advise you what to do because I couldn't, I was out of the picture. I think that was probably the way it was supposed to go. You know, at the end of the day. Yeah. Oh, well, yes. I'm, yeah. I wouldn't change any no, of that uh -uh. because 
you guys became successful and my life went in the right direction. And exactly. We all got to be, you know, I, 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 Glenn's daughter Zola's here and she feels like family to me because of that and wouldn't have otherwise. So, no, that's all great. But um, what did it like? It was your, crazy times. Yeah, I mean, we never thought we'd have that kind of success. It was uh, crazy. You know, we, we were getting calls from David Geffen and pretty much every record label at the time. And uh, our managers uh, came up and they had a meeting with all the parents. Okay. At, <laughs> oh, at, at, at our house. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You're going to love this. They sat down and, and all the parents came and they were all sitting in the living room of my house and our managers, Chris and Brad told them, okay, this is what's happening to your, to your children, you know? And, and it was an, I think it was an attempt by them to, you know, to show that this was real. You know, and, and, and we weren't just coming home and say, oh, yeah, we're going to get signed or whatever. Because, I mean, I think, you know, Especially your you, dad being a musician. my dad being a musician, he was very skeptical of the whole thing. Um, you know, because, you know, that someone saying didn't there understand. And, we made sad music. Yeah. And his dad his, was from a world where sad, like who would, wants to hear that? Well, and also my, my dad came from a world where songwriters and the person who performed them were different people. You know, you, someone would go out and Sammy Kahn was the songwriter and, you know, then, you know, Tony Bennett was the singer. And but this so, was 1989. I know, I mean, but my got, dad, my dad, I mean, there were a lot my of dad would say to me, generation. my dad would say this fellow, uh, Springsteen, you know, who, who writes his songs? I go, Dad, Bruce writes his own songs. Really? <laughs> you know? He didn't get, he didn't really he get that whole singer, singer songwriter. He didn't get that. So they had this meeting and they explained to the, I mean, we were all still, um, many of us were still in college. And, but, you know, you, you, you kind of think that, you know, things are going in the right direction. It starts to pop, you know, and, and you think, wow, we, we might be about to get signed here. But then everything starts to go really slowly and it takes months and months and months. So, But part of that was, Todd, weren't you guys, it, it seemed to me that I remember talking to Chris about this a lot, who was your manager then, who I think a big strength of Chris's was his lack of experience because he came from a different world mm-hmm. and was trying to protect the he's the long-term future of mm-hmm. the band and it seemed like you guys made certain choices to not take the most money you could up front but instead right t- talk about the deal that you guys struck not the money of it but the I did at the record company ultimately right y- your terms were the record company had to release your two independent records one year that at is. a time yeah chris was like a dad to us you know he was watching over us and uh, even though he didn't have a lot of experience he uh he believed in us and fought for us and uh, it was great i think um yeah, he really but, got, he got the, the music but why was it that you wanted so at that time record companies were paying a lot of money for bands like you and um you guys had offers that were like real sort of like Big money offers if you would have if we made a new made record. A new record. That, yeah. And instead, because I think it's interesting, you guys understood early on, or it seemed to me from the from hearing it and, and even the result of it, that you had some understanding about trying to build it for a longer period of time. Definitely. Where'd I mean, we had from? offers of big advances and, and we turned them down in exchange for a a record company where we thought they were in it for the long haul and they actually were because uh we didn't break until the third single on our third album but looking back i think pale was our our biggest mistake i wish i think that record's pretty subpar and uh i wish we had gone and made a real record then you mean that you didn't put that second record yeah. out? Yeah. But did all of you feel that way at the time? Glenn, did you feel that way? Um, at the time, no. I mean, I can't listen to either of the first two records now, but I, I think the, the thing about those records that people love is that, I mean, no. how can I say this? Nobody wants to look at, like, almost nobody wants to look at, like, naked pictures of themselves at 16. You know, uh, it, it's just, it's too revealing, it's too awkward, you're not fully done. But there's something about those records that are, they're so um, imperfect, they're so unadorned, that there's there's a refreshing honesty to them, even for all their, like, deep, deep flaws. They're really flawed, If I, you know, I would redo absolutely everything on them, but that's probably why people like them is because they're they're revealing in a way that most records don't get to. Well, be. I think about a song like High on a Riverbed. 
which is what on pale, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the one of the songs are great. That's There's one of the best the, 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 rocket There's songs. nothing wrong with the songs. It's just kind of oh, like even it's the recording that we just had like some huge argument or something. Like I was out in the, like I remember the even the the recording it was just like it that had song this in particular. Yeah, like I was in a shit mood. It was really like that there was something about having to get in that mode and I was just as dark as dark could be like when we cut it and like and so like and the moments were the moments right we just walked in and played the song and that was it and so I I love that about those albums but I can never listen to them (laughs) yeah Pale's one of my favorite albums like I've always had Pale I've always had Pale on like every format that I could have that on it's always Mm -hmm. been um, with me it's one of the ones that I go back to like I go back to that more than Coil for Mm -hmm. sure um you know, because of the sadness in it, I think. Because you, know, and you can you, of you know, the you, yearning in it. You can perfect and perfect and overdub and 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 clean up, you know, things forever. But you know, and I'm sure that you experience this in in filmmaking and in and in your job as well. If you get the emotion right, the, most totally. of it's there. Oh, a hundred percent. If especially if you get the emotion mm-hmm. in a way that the um, audience receives it. Yeah. It's one thing for you to feel it. That doesn't matter as much, right? You feeling it when you're playing it right. matters less than me receiving it as the listener in yeah. a way. I mean, to the, to what you're, but yeah, of course, if you can do that transfer of, of, of the emotion in question to the, to the, to the fan receiving it, you've achieved something. And mm-hmm. for me, there are songs and that. And it's funny what you just said about High on a Riverbed because I remember when we were young, I would ask you to play it, and you never wanted to play it. <laughs> and I, I, hmm. I, I don't know why. Like I remember the first I ten years, because I couldn't. Like I, I'm, I was such a ham-fisted guitarist. Now I can't play it because my hands paralyzed. But that that whole. Yeah, I'm not gonna make you play it now. It was just like, <laughs> but, uh, but I would always screw up the the picking of it. I couldn't play the part well enough. Yeah, no, I remember you always were, had a freighted relationship with that song. Yeah, it's kind of like you, an Elton John song. Yeah, but done. It very is. Do you mellow. guys play it? Have you played it in concert? You know, we, we were playing there. it a bit um, a couple of years ago. We pulled oh, it the out. Pale, we like twenty fifth yeah. anniversary. Back to the, I mean, quickly on the, the deal, it. though, I think there was also... And the live money, too. They had to support you on tour, right? They did a little bit of tour. We were off tour support pretty quickly. We were a cheap band. Our, our thing was we took very little money up front for, um, for the licensing of the first two records, and we took only a recording expense advance for, for Fear and for Dulcinea. We didn't take any like money to live off or anything. We got a higher than normal royalty rate because we wanted to earn it. But even with that, I mean, people were spending, you know, $200,000 on videos those days. So even with that, we sold a million and a half records and we still had never seen a royalty check and we were the cheapest band on Sony. So um, there was, but a big part of it for us too was we came with this kind of, you know, indie, and people think of us as a, pop band I think because all I want hit at this time when radio had just opened but we had a really punk rock ethos I mean we came from the indie world like when Todd and I started playing songs it was you know there was you know it was Dinosaur Jr. Husker Du replacements like that R.E.M. R.E.M. was R.E.M. was in there and that was when R.E.M. was an indie band before our you know and everybody was dealing with this idea of what do you do when college music goes mainstream? And, and you know, the 90s was this weird period. I was thinking about it in terms of, like, film placement and stuff. Uh, there's a reason that Walking on Sunshine gets placed and, like, you know, Pearl Jam doesn't as much because all the songs from that era, they're just like, they're, like, all about how hard life is. It's all negative ideation. And there, you can't find as... You can find specific placement... Uh, maybe I'm still alive, but not Jeremy, right? <laughs> From Merle Jam. But it's like, in that way, like when we got into it, there was this definite, like, we're going to earn what we make. We don't want hits. Radio's stupid. Like, we had this We very... hated all those metal bands, especially that were on the radio, you know? Like Warrant, I mean, Rest Yeah, we hated those guys. Candy, like, so we were kind yeah. of rebelling against that whole thing, in a way. Right. But then, but some of you guys did want commercial like the commercial success sure 
But even making fear, it's like I wanted to make like a, a Tears for Fears or a Peter Gabriel or a Talk Talk record. Like that's what, you know, it's like, oh, we got these, I loved these, you know, Kate Bush. I love these big crazy. Talk Talk was Dumb Dumb Girl, right? Didn't they have that song? Uh, well, they were, yeah, but they were also, well, there's It's My Life, but there was also Laughing Stock and, uh, and, and Spirit of Eden, which are just masterpieces of weirdness. But you're saying glorious. those were what was in your head. Yeah, you those bands yeah. had great production and, you know, good songs and so when we headed in to make that we actually almost didn't put walk on the ocean or good and good intentions didn't make the right good intentions wasn't on until we were were like they're too pop we can't have them we're not i think all i want you almost didn't all i want and so there was we were trying to make like a big production but still an indie record (laughs) we were we were anti-single uh and it didn't and did you feel the the same way about that were you yeah for sure too uh, those are my two f- uh, least favorite songs. Um, although I've grown to like All I Want. But yeah, we were definitely uh, not happy with those. And we wanted to go a different direction. But as, but we saw what it did for us. And uh, they're still good songs. I'm really grateful for it at this point. Yeah, I mean, for the fact that yeah, the whole the audience still sings here. along to those songs. And also, they were both those songs... I remember both of those songs, the versions that got released are slightly different than the versions on the album, right? There was a yeah, single mix yeah, and Walk on the Ocean remix. has an extra chorus on it on the... Yeah, both of those were remixes yep. for radio. By like a Lord Al- Chris Lord Algae or that one was of those? Uh, Michael, Brower. Michael Brower, who's a great mixer. You he know? mixed both but of them? The, yeah, he did both mm-hmm. of those, but at the time it was shocking. Oh, when and we had, were what so livid, we argued, we couldn't you know, stand it. But <laughs> they both sound terrific on the radio, and that's kind of what we didn't get it, is, you know, there's a certain presentational aspect of these mixes that, yeah. you know when it hits that compression and goes out over the radio mm-hmm. waves and finally makes it into the tinny little speakers in your honda you know you you want it to you want it to come well across. that last chorus on walk in the ocean i mean you need like you, you need want that. that chorus yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and i'm in. sure it was a big help but it was a strange it was a strange era because the biggest bands at that time and you look like nirvana pearl jam you counting crows even right are all bands who refused to play their singles live or mangled their singles live and had this like strong like self-sabotaging anti-commercial thing they're all on major labels i mean we all agreed to be on a major label and then we all pretended like well i didn't sign up for this i don't want i don't want anybody to hear me uh, right but you weird, had genuine i mean weird you did 90s have a disease. genuine like glenn i mean you did have a, a uh, you genuinely were of two minds about this stuff like yeah i mean we had a lot of like late all night long conversations deeply conflicted where i remember seeing you guys at, at this huge show um, in LA somewhere you'd played a, a gigantic show and, and afterwards I was talking to you and you were compl- you were just like something about looking into those faces of the people looking at you for answers like bothered you in a way it's a weird uh, that, that amount of like attention and reflection is is really hard I mean I'm a I don't know why I'm bringing up this story. I recorded a friend of mine who's a brilliant musician and also, um, you know, bipolar. And I co-wrote and produced a song with him and just spent like two 12-hour days. He was in a dark space. And I went into a two-week depression after it just because I'm porous. Yes. And I don't have like really good defenses against stuff coming into me. And so all that attention just... it And wanting to, you know, I always deeply distrusted fame i'm really happy i met my wife when i was 18 you know before the band took off like i had my friends i had my i had my supportive people i knew and trusted that knew me for me and that was always really important and i saw a lot of people would get lost in all that you know external reflection um and there's there people i mean it's one of the things i've admired about you 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 grew up being able to feel like yourself wherever you were whether you're hanging out with you know ceos actors whatever you can be with the most powerful people in the world and act exactly the same as you act if you go to a dive bar and you're going to start a conversation you're fascinated by people and you know who you are i'm a little more 
wishy-washy. <laughs> and so I get, um, and, and so the, the protection, I think, of myself from all that input and just the weirdness of the situation and feeling like a really unfinished human being, uh, it's strange having all these people look at you. Yeah, and I remember it would frustrate me so much watching you go through that because I wanted you to become Jackson Brown. Like I wanted the band to become, to keep going. I saw that your this ambivalence was was yeah, totally sabotaged you. the career too. Yeah, no, I, I think it had a, and I, yeah. I mean, I I've always wondered like how you guys understood that or grappled with it or if you had any of the same feelings or not. You know, part of it's you know, Glenn's in a different position and because, he's, because totally he's writing these words, and you know, like like he said, you know, people looking at you for the answers, you know, but you don't want them, you know. I hopefully they don't they don't think you have all the answers. I think it's okay for people to look at you and and be like, someone else is is going through the same things I am, and I'm not alone. And it, you know, and that feeling of community that can come from people hearing words and 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 the songs and bringing people together. Um, you know, it's it's always different for the lead singer and especially the lead uh, writer on stuff. You yeah. know, yes. Um, it was, you know, I, I I think we were all pretty supportive of of everything. And, you know, well, it's, going it's on. funny because Walk on the Ocean. When you think about it, the bittersweet, the thing about the song, which I'd love you guys to play, even though Todd, you don't like the song. Walk on the Ocean, I love. No. Well, I thought you said that those are your two. Oh, good intentions. Oh, oh good. good okay. Yeah. He, he doesn't like good I walk on the oceans like the great. You know, no, just, it's one of um, my favorites. But to me, like lyrically, you know, the ambivalence of these kinds of fleeting moments of touching somebody's being emotions, and then you know your own sort of like um, overarching idea that they'd already forgotten we came. Uh, you know that this idea um, really, and it was before you became really famous as a band in a way. That, one of the two things that made you that famous it's almost like you were forecasting what was going to happen in a way perhaps <laughs> yeah even though you wrote it in seven minutes and it was from your subconscious yeah yeah and, and i mean yeah even all i want is just it is you know this song about how fleeting you know epiphany kind of landing in and everything feeling right for an instant and then kind of going back to the rough grain of life right <laughs> and so um it's almost a feel-good song it's a feel-good for a moment song <laughs> well, i see i find walk on the ocean though is an always feel-good song because it uh allows for the fact that those moments are real and yeah. they linger and the truth is by dint of the fact that you wrote the song um every everything that happened in that song everyone in that song is still connected those emotions mm -hmm. still live every time that you play it and, and yeah. right before you play, I'd say, I'd ask you this. When you're on stage now and you're looking out at all these people who are with you for all this time now, and that everybody made it out and made it through, mm -hmm. does it must, I wonder, does that give you, when you, uh, seeing them now looking at you, having kids, basically kids the age they were then, does it, does that feel good to you? It feels great. I mean, I have a really different, you know, thank God for growing up, right? I have a really different, attitude towards it and, and there's a part of me that even rebelled a long time because you know I'm still a songwriter you know against the idea of nostalgia right and that uh, you know taking every time somebody would say I love walk on the ocean I, I would think of I would I would hear I hate everything you've written since the band broke up and you know, that's how I would interpret it. I completely relate to it. Crappy way to interpret Like, it's like, but what about... Yeah, every time somebody... Rounders! For a long time, whenever <laughs> somebody would meet Dave and me and they would go, oh my God, Rounders is my favorite movie of all time. I would absolutely think, like, yeah, dude, but we've made like 10 things since And they're then. so much better. Like, We're so and much better all now. these things. Like, but then, somewhere 10 years in, I realized, no, no, that's great. There, it's That's great. great. It was a beginning for all of us, and then you're along for the ride. But I completely relate to that idea of um, the 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 duality of what that feels like. Yeah, and and I've been thinking a lot. I mean, you know, whole other conversation. But I've been doing for like over two years now, doing um, like these community singing choir leading things. I've been leading leading people in song and just get wanted to do something that was completely non-commercial and I found outlets for that and 
done a lot of examining how music works, right? How, how music sits in people and what it provides for them and where it takes them. And it's allowed me to come back into the band and really kind of expand my vision instead of thinking, God, are, you know, sometimes I could be, are people locked in the past? Why do they want? And, and then really understanding like how music works in the body and the mind that when you step back, especially for the songs you heard in your twenties, when I think you had a knowledge of yourself, but not a whole lot of experience yet. You hadn't been knocked down a bunch of times. And in middle age, you come back to some of that feeling of exactly that same core that you knew was true in your 20s, but with a little bit of resilience, having gone through, having, having added some wisdom to it, and that those songs from that period speak to you again in a way that's like... In a different like, way. In a different way, but it's like I knew then who I was, and in, in the same way a smell or a taste brings you back, like music has this way of transporting you, and especially if you're regaining your sense of self, which I a lot of us do in our like for, late forties and fifties. Yeah, the, the return to that is, is a really valid expression. And so I, I've, you know, I've gone, you know, I've gone through my own craziness with it. But right these days, I'm really deeply grateful, and I love how much heart our audience has. And uh, we're lucky. I mean, and maybe every band says this, but like, there are so many bands where you know people show up for the single. And they get excited about the single and then and but with us like every deep track everything that's kind of more emotional and more harder to find people lean forward into it sing every word they're they're really there hundred that's a hundred yeah true. and it, make, it makes me really proud of what we've done all right so will you guys play uh, walk in the ocean yeah, yeah. We, um, yeah. let's see if we can tune here two we spotted the ocean Head of the trail And where are we going So far away Somebody told me This is the place Where everything's better And everything's safe Walk on the ocean Step on the stones Flesh becomes water Wood becomes bone Half an hour later We packed up our things Said we'd send letters all of those little things They knew we were lying Smiled just the same It seemed that already Forgotten we'd care Walk on the ocean Step on the stove Becomes water, wood becomes bone. Walk on the ocean, step on the stone. Flesh becomes water, wood becomes Trust is a joke We don't even have pictures Just memories to hold They grow sweeter each season As we slowly grow I got a text two nights ago from a friend who said, I'm listening to the podcast and just rewind it to hear you talk about The New Yorker again. 
And the reason is, as I always say, there's nothing more fun to talk about than The New Yorker. I've been reading it for as long as I can remember. Why? Because The New Yorker represents the best writing in America today. Beyond publishing the best writers, they hold people in power accountable through rigorous reporting and compelling storytelling. Look, online and in print, The New Yorker covers a full range of topics, politics, news, food, climate change, pop culture, and the arts. They write so well. Look, look, here's the thing. When I read The New Yorker, I always come away feeling like I know not just more, but I know more in depth uh, with a point of view about stuff that I didn't really know about before. I mean, they have uh, incredible writers. Look, I would tell you that I think Emily Nussbaum is one of the best critics in the world, even if she didn't love Billions. The fact that she does means I'm going to mention her right here. Uh, Doreen St. Felix, a staff writer of The New Yorker, who covers the highs and lows of today's culture. She won the L Award for columns and commentary. There are uh, more and more, I mean, my pal Helen Rosner, who writes about food uh, and what it means in the culture. Look, The New Yorker is quite simply uh, the finest collection of writers and articles, stories, voices we need to engage with right now. So here's the offer. 12 weeks for just six bucks. It's regularly 12, plus the New Yorker tote bag. Home delivery, the print edition each week. Unlimited access to newyorker.com with 10 to 15 exclusive site-only stories every day. You get access to the apps, the online archive, the crossword puzzle, and more. You get 12 weeks of the New Yorker for just six bucks, plus the exclusive tote. Go to newyorker.com slash moment. Listeners save 50% when they enter moment. The, this song, while they're trying to, while you guys are figuring it out. Why don't you tell us the story of the moment? <laughs> I'm just right. Saying. Well, no, I mean, this was originally, this was a, this song was originally the theme song of the podcast. And then for some, like, the original place that I did the podcast for, at a certain point, we're like, well, you can't play this record. So I wasn't able to to do it. That's what, that's the reason that it's not the theme. Then you wrote a letter saying that we could, but it was like too late already. But that um, the first, however many episodes of the podcast, like thirty of them, I think, had the song "The Moment" as the theme song. And then, um, because when you were making that record, I, I heard a lot of iterations of that album. He shared a lot of like steps along the way. How many like, have you Three hundred or something yeah. like that. Wow. Um, I'm not sure exactly, but something like yeah. three. I mean, I've been doing it for five sleep? years. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. you know, you know exactly where I sleep and when. <laughs> I go to sleep early all the time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you want to play? So it would be great if you guys played the moment. Because yeah. I love this song, and it's a recent song, and it shows that you guys haven't lost a step. All right, let's try it. Shame doesn't become you. There are no mistakes in the final view. No blame How could it be so wrong That your heart was braver Than your will was strong For every path you follow There's another left behind Every door don't kick open There's a million more to try Everything you taught me is the one I learned the best. There is nothing but the moment. Don't you waste it on regret. I'll go who we have to be. We just get by. Forget what you need. Just know. I don't need to fit in Is there room for you In your life with him For every path you follow There's another left behind Every door you don't kick open There's a million more to try For everything you taught me is the one I learned the best 
is nothing but the mom Don't you waste it on regret It's out of my hand, out of my hand But I miss my friend, miss my friend This is the price of honesty But I'm not sorry For every path you follow There's another left behind Every door you don't keep open there's a million more to try For everything you taught me Here's the one I learned the best There is nothing but the mom Don't you waste it on the bread Yeah, great. Awesome. Uh, Todd, how have, do you think you guys have learned, people always ask me this question about collaboration, and uh, how have you guys learned over the years to talk better creatively and not allow the little slights or, or hurts to sort of like manifest? Do you Are you consciously communicating with each other in a different way? Is it just a function of getting older? Uh, yeah, a lot of it's just getting older and realizing that it's not the end of the world. Um, you know, and uh, uh, God, that's a tough question. Yeah, we don't. People ask me about it much. all, but you don't. That's hilarious. <laughs> that's the answer. Not talking, basically, too much. Yeah, what do you think, Glenn? I mean, I, mean, I think increasingly, I, I think there, there's periods where. There, you know, there's sometimes in bands, you know, I don't know, yeah, uno unavoidable conflicts. I think in general, the, the, we've already always been pretty clear, and you know, not always 100%, but pretty clear that what everybody wants is the best song possible. And that, like, that's been the meeting ground. So when there's disagreements and, you know, uh, and as years go by, I think people check, I think there's less territorial pissing than there was at some earlier times but it was never bad i mean i i feel like there was always i've always been a massive fan of todd's songs yes. and he i think has always, always liked that. mine and we've had you know we have our disagreements but we want to make the best album we can and that's always been kind of job number one and so um just yeah. not communicating when you know things will get bad <laughs> you mean making the choice not to say the thing exactly that's really very hard to do when you're young. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, for sure. And as you get older, you realize, like, let's see if this still bothers me in a week. It's we a week goes much quicker. Yeah, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. For me, it does anyway. Yeah. Now, yeah. So it's like, let's see if in a week I'm still feeling this way, and then yeah. But knowing when to let things go is good. I mean, it's a strange. We're as a band, a lot of our writing process has, you know, often been uh, in kind of a slow burn in the background as opposed to hammering it all out in, in rehearsal. In separate r rooms, too, you know, him at his house, me at my house, sending tapes, you know, over I go email. work on the lyrics alone, you know, bring them back, and, you know, it's like... We've never sat down in a room and hashed it out, maybe back in the old days. I don't think we bit. ever just wrote a song in a no, room No, we together, always had recording. Ever. Yeah. Right, that's amazing, right? You guys have never actually just sat with two guitars and written no. a song. He doesn't even like to show me a song idea if it's only got one guitar part. Like, he'll do a demo with two or three guitar parts before he plays it. always has to have it. two guitar parts. Always has to have at least two. Right, before he'll even share before the music even, with you. Before he'll even show it to me. Right, and then at some point you'll show it to 
Glenn. Yeah. Yeah. I do a lot of uh, working with Dean. Yeah, no. Uh, to get it to a certain place. And yeah, then, he's a good producer. Yes. Always, always been a good producer and arranger. Um, w- Todd, one thing, I don't know if you know, like uh, Glenn always talks about you uh, with a certain kind of awe about your ability to get good at everything. I'm sure he probably doesn't say it to you, but he says he said it to me forever. Like, and it is true. Like when you decided to get good at golf, you got great at golf. You want to build guitars, you like build the coolest looking guitars. You decide you were going to lose weight, you just were like, "Well, that's that." Like, what is it that allows? What do you think it is? Do you have a technique for this shit? Like, because it is incredible. Like, you are able when you put your mind to something. Like, you well, most are of that able stuff to- you mentioned is just hobbies, and I'm I'm a I love hobbies. I always have. You know, I was always. Not skateboarding, tinkerer. surfing. <laughs> I would like buy a no, skateboard. I, I do. I'm the kind of person who would buy a skateboard or get a membership to something and then feel like, okay, that's done. Right. <laughs> yeah, like you seem no, to I go deep, everything I, I, I want to do it professionally, everything I do. I'm like, I'm going to be a professional surfer. Right. I mean, guitar is kind of a hobby. I mean, it's the other thing. It's like a thing you like to do, so you do it really well and get good at You know, it happens to be the job, but it's like... Guitar is probably the least thing you know the thing i'm least good at is playing guitar yeah. but making them you're really good at making them uh, yeah it's more design but yeah what do you mean it's more design just coming up with i don't you know come up with new shapes or anything i'm using the fender shape yes they're parts casters and uh, so it's, it's just a hobby i could i wanted better guitars than i could buy and cheaper so i just started doing it myself and then other people started to want them and uh just went from there yeah, your Instagram. What's your? Is it just your name? Your Instagram? Uh, Nichols Guitars is Instagram, but Nichols Custom Guitars is the website. People should check it out. The guitars are gorgeous. I stare They're at those amazing. guitars. They're just Thanks. incredible. Are you all playing them on tour? I'm playing a Nichols bass. <laughs> Is he going to give it to you? Will he give it to you? Or do you got to buy it? No, actually, we're going to sell that one, and then we're going to make a special one for me afterwards. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, you're going to sell the one that you play? I'm going to sell the one I that I play. See, because it's got my, you know, uh-huh. the my magic. Fun, my funk all over it. Yes, and then it's, it's got it, the know, magic. People, people I brought, want, uh, want I think, funk. eight, nine guitars out on the road, and I've sold four of them. After the shows? After the show, they'll, mm-hmm. they'll just, because I don't need that many guitars. <laughs> that's awesome but but uh, how much time do you put like is it when you get into one of these grooves does it become like the center of your life for a period of time yeah i got a workshop studio and i just go out there and pretty much work all day so on the guitars or when you were getting good at golf it was like every day you were playing yeah yeah or even fishing i was fishing fly fishing so much i got tennis elbow <laughs> right so and, when uh, that's school, when i started like, building the guitars is because i couldn't fish anymore he would play hook he would skip school his mom would get a call and he'd be home tying flies you know right yeah that was one of my first jobs <laughs> yeah it's just an amazing thing so you're worth following because like we'll see what the next hobby is do you then keep them like are you still good at golf or are you not good anymore oh i've got i need a knee replacement <laughs> oh so you can't play i could but not as well as i'd like to we gotta get back on union uh gotta figure out how to get back on union health insurance all right yeah. I, I, I uh i gotta let you guys go because it's been a long time do you want to leave us with one more song you can pick whatever you want to play yeah what do you want to do would it behoove us to play all I want? Sure, and let's let you go yeah. out on this, but let me just say thank you guys. I will say um, it's very special to me to have you here and to be looking at uh, all of you because I see you at this age and I see you at 20 years old uh, at the same time, and it's uh, it's heavy in the best possible in the best possible way. So thank you. Uh, Thanks so for good to see play you, all Brad. I want, and uh, everyone go see Toad the Wet Sprocket when they come through your town and go listen. Uh, I was so heartened to see today that you guys get 600,000 plays, more than 600,000 plays a month on Spotify. Wow. I mean, that's an amazing thing that you made these records so long ago and that you're getting 600,000 plays a month on Spotify. That is staggering. Millions of plays, millions and millions and millions of plays um, a year, which means that people are still finding your great music and loving it. We're and starting to see some younger faces showing up at the shows as well. You're not sh- just coming with their parents. Really? Some people in their 40s? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. All right. Play, play one more. Yeah, and, uh, guys, go listen to Toad. See everybody. Nothing so loud It's here and when we lie Truth is not kind You said neither am I 
air outside so soft Saying everything Everything All I want is to feel this way Be this close, feel the same All I want is to feel this way The evening speaks, feel it say Nothing so cold It's closing the heart And all we need is to free the soul We wouldn't be that brave, I know Air outside, so song confessing everything, everything. All I want is to feel this way, to be this close, feel the same. All I want is to feel this way. Evening speaks, feel it See Toad the Wet Sprocket, uh, buy their records, stream their records. If you want to contact me, the moment pk at gmail.com or um, uh, on Twitter at Brian Koppelman. They're on Twitter. Glenn's on there and on Instagram. Uh, Dean's on Instagram at Dean. What's your Instagram? Uh, just my name, Dean Dinning. So you can find Dean there and the official Toad the Wet Sprocket uh, handle on Twitter. Thanks, guys. See you soon. You. Everybody, see you next time.